Hi, and welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm EPIC's Executive Director, Sam Ori. President Biden has made climate change a top priority for his administration. But how big of a priority is it for the American public? And are the public's views reflected in Congress? On October 26th, EPIC hosted a conversation with this year's policy fellows, Carlos Carbello and Heather McTiertoni. They dug into the results of a poll we conducted with the Associated Press and the National Opinion Research Center here at the University of Chicago to track opinions on central topics shaping the energy and climate landscape in the United States. EPIC Director Michael Greenstone joined the conversation, which was moderated by The Atlantic's Rob Meyer. Let's listen into the conversation. Thanks everyone for coming. We've been doing this poll for several years, uh, like many other uh, COVID casualties. It took a pause for a little while, but uh, we're back in action and uh, deeply honored to have these uh, tremendous guests here to help us interpret the results and understand what's going on in the broader energy and environment world. And there's excellent write-ups outside uh, that describe it. So I thought I would just hit upon uh, a couple points that uh, came, uh, stuck out to me in the poll. Uh, so Attitudes about climate, as a nice AP video report said, uh, there has really been a pretty large increase, maybe 10 percentage points in how much people care about climate change. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit uh, about willingness to pay, and I think that's something that we have some value added in trying to talk about here at Epic, uh, and also just general increase in support uh, for various climate policies. So I'm just going to uh, start with... Uh, this is so. This is a little. Uh, it's a little bit hard to interpret. So I'm going to try and do it slowly. Uh, so we asked a series of questions. Uh, people were randomly assigned different questions, uh, and one question was, "Would you pay at least one dollar a month uh, to uh, do something about climate change?" And there, you can see about 52% of the population uh, said that they would do uh, at least one dollar a month. And then we're going to try and unpack that and show that uh, there's a lot of heterogeneity under that or a lot of differences underneath that. But I think you should, and this will be a tension that we're going to try and talk about on the panel, how much people are willing to pay versus a world where there's no such thing as like, it's just yes or no. And so what's, you could, it's striking that about half the people are not willing to pay anything. Uh, but then when you ask, well, would you be willing to pay at least $10? Uh, the number actually remains pretty high. Uh, and what I was especially struck by uh, is that even if you get to, would you be willing to pay at least $100, uh, you still have about 30% of the population who's willing to do that. Uh, and so there's a couple things that fall out of that. Uh, the first is this number, if you averaged it across all the people, uh, has gone up over time. So when we did this in 2017, uh, the average person was willing to pay uh, about $29, and that's an average across a bunch of people who are zero and a bunch of people who are willing to pay more. Uh, in 2018, it was a little bit less, you know, statistically probably about the same. Uh, and when you, in uh, this most recent poll, it's now up to $40. Uh, and what I see is so fascinating about this uh, and kind of strikes at why the climate challenge is so complicated politically uh, is the average person is $40, but there's half the people who are zero. Uh, 
Uh, and I'm hoping that Rob and our experts uh, will help us navigate through, is there such a thing as a deal where the half of the people who don't really care very much about it and not willing to pay very much can be compensated uh, by the people who are willing uh, to pay more? Uh, and I said, that's one of, the, I think, the most striking things that uh, comes out of this. I'll just note, uh, when we paired the questions with, and the revenues will be used for this, that, the other thing, the answer doesn't change very much. If it's the revenues will be used for adaptation, the average willingness to pay uh, is $39. If it's going to be used for R&D, uh, it's $37. And actually, if it's going to be used uh, for tax rebates, uh, then it's $35. I, I don't know that those are statistically very different, but my main thing that I take away from it is uh, the average person, and there's no such, no person is the average, uh, is willing to pay about $40. And that's a relatively large increase over the last several years. Uh, and again, when you pair that with that half the people are unwilling to pay anything, it's quite the political challenge. And I think we'll try and illustrate that here. Uh, so, you could say there's a segment of the population who's unwilling to pay anything. Uh, there's a segment of the population who, remember the question was at least $100, so possibly unbounded. Uh, and then you got the people in the middle. Uh, and the task in front of uh, the US political system is to see if there's an agreement or deal that can be made that brings maybe not all three of those archetypes along, but at least two of them. Uh, and uh, we have such a terrific set of experts here to help us navigate that conversation. So with that, uh, let me turn it over to Rob, who's going to lead us. It's a great pleasure. Rob has been our visiting uh, Paul, uh, journalism fellow for a year, and I think it's the first time he stepped foot in Chicago. Visit. Yeah. 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 So, uh, anyway, welcome, Rob. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the presentation. I, I guess I would actually start first by asking you as you sit down. Um, and thank you so much for the presentation. Let's. We ran a whole poll. It deserves a round of applause at the very <laughs> least. Um, the $40 number has gone up. Just to ground our understanding, is that because um, more people are willing to pay anything or because Democrats will just say, yeah, sure, $100? Yeah, of course. No, so the it. fraction of people who are willing to pay 100 uh, I think that has gone up, uh, sorry, at least 100 has gone up maybe by about 10 percentage points. It, it's in the materials. And so you really see a lot more people who are feeling like this is becoming an urgent issue to which, at least in the context of this poll, they're willing to devote money to. Cool. And, um, you know, as economists like to think of, like, there's a, there's a talking and doing, uh, and talking is saying I'm in favor of something, and doing is paying for it. Um, I think I'd start with Congressman Carrillo and say, you, when you look at this problem, do you see a way to bridge this gap between the average, the fictional average person who's willing to pay $40 and what it seems to be in kind of one level deeper from that, which is, the 52% of Americans who are willing to pay $1. At least $1. At least $1. The 33% of Americans who seem kind of willing to say yes to any dollar amount you throw at them. And then the you know 48% of Americans who, will, who say, no, I just wouldn't pay anything more. 
Yeah, Rob, I think, well, first let me, let me thank uh, University of Chicago and Epic for, for having us and for having me as a, a fellow in particular for, for this uh, uh, year. Uh, it'll be my privilege to hopefully get to know a lot of you and learn from you and, and you know, share, share a little bit of my experience. Um, but, but I would say, Rob, that, that yes, I, I do think that we will eventually be able to bridge the gap because you look at the numbers and every year they get better. Every year people are willing to do more. Every year more and more people care about this issue and prioritize it when they go to the polls. So, uh, yeah, and of course the Congress is, is uh, although we may not want to hear this, but the Congress is nothing but a reflection of the country. And uh, sure, uh, the country is, in terms of our society, not in great shape these days, and that's why Congress disappoints us so often. But uh, on this issue, quietly, below the headlines, there is a growing bipartisan consensus in the Congress. Five years ago, it'd be very hard to find Republicans who were even willing to talk about this issue. I know because I was there and I was recruiting them and I, I found very few. And then, and then time passed and there were more and more. And today you have Republicans saying that they want to have their own climate agenda and have started taking very modest steps to develop their climate agenda. So yes, I do think that this trend is irreversible. How long it takes until we get the big solutions we need, I don't know, it's gonna be probably a few years, but there's no question that we're in a much better place than we were just a few years ago. And that in all likelihood, that's only going to continue. Uh, trending that way. And I, I want to come back to that, to the progress that has been made on the on bipartisan climate policy. Um, but first, I want to ask, Heather, uh, do you see a, a, a deal here or even a way to reach a deal between the average person, the 48% that say no, and the 52% that's willing to pay at least $1? So, yes. And I do want to echo, Congressman, you know, the, the thank yous. Um, for having us. I think the fact that we are having this conversation in the University of Chicago and Epic has provided the space for us to have a conversation about the middle ground is indicative of what is happening and what needs to continue to take place. The, the piece though that I think we're seeing here that maybe we're not saying is the centering of, of equity. Who is that average person? And what is the space where we need to get to that brings equity as a part of the conversation. We are definitely, I think, far beyond the place of talking about is climate change happening? Because we are seeing so many different groups actively talking about how we come to solutions. But who is that average person? Where are they centered? That is gonna be part of the path to determining um, what that solution looks like. I'm, I'm very hopeful because we do see you know, now climate evangel the evangelical climate movement alongside the um, Baptist National Baptist Convention <laughs> talking about climate. You know, we see labor talking about climate. We're seeing separate part ends of different movements actually talking about it. But who and how we address equity, I think, is centered in that solution around that 50%. Can I just add, when we talk about equity and climate change, I mean, I think it's extremely important and core to these issues. Um, Many inequities exist, period. Many inequities exist because some groups of people have had power and the ability to oppress other people 
and biases against them for a very long time. Um, certainly because when we talk about all the kind of inequities as a group, some people have had a lot of power and some people haven't. Um, and they wielded that power in harmful ways. I'm gonna be a bit of a sourpuss here, but and ask, given that these inequities stem from political differences and stem from political causes, is that gonna help? How do you see that helping climate change, which is already quite a divided issue and an issue where working out the politics is already hard? So we'll push back a little bit because I think it's not that it's political, it's race. You know, our, we have historic and systemic racial issues in this country that we've actually seen shift in parties. I mean, Abraham Lincoln was a Republican, but that's not today's Republican. I don't think he was a Trump Republican. So I think we, we talk about race as part of the historic systemic problems, and that has been exasperated over the years. But there is a path forward if we understand and are at least acknowledging it. When we think about this 50%, for example, this gap, it's, it's a reflection of the wealth disparities that we've seen happen since COVID. There are people in our country that made a lot of money after COVID. They were able to work from home. They were able to utilize the resources that they had that put them in a better position to move quickly in places, including climate. Um, there were people who were frontline workers who couldn't, quite frankly. And so that disparity got wider. But the thing about climate that's different from everything else is number one, it is intersectional. And number two, there's timeline. And so it doesn't make a difference whether you are on the extremely wealthy end or you on the, the extremely poor end. Climate change continues to happen and it will impact all of us. So it is in our best interest if we want to beat the time clock that we figure out how to work together. How can we bring that best interest? And I agree with you. How do, can we bring that best interest into politics? Because I think one, as I mean, as you know, like the whole struggle has been getting people to realize we're on a time clock, and then integrating it into policy. Uh, and in fact, I feel like the the core dispute between Senate Democrats and Senator Manchin right now is about whether how we recognize this clock or not. So, how do you? Uh, not to put you on the spot, obviously, I'm not asking you to solve climate change in the middle of this panel, oh, but I guess gosh. how would you bring this into uh, how, when you think about ways to address the average voter or that, you know, we talk about the average person being, um, how do we make that time clock more salient for people, more important for them to solve quickly? I think we have to talk about the issue, ways to meet people where they are. Like, climate is very intersectional. We may talk about it differently, but we're talking about the same thing. And I, like, I love this example of language. I'm from Mississippi. I happen to be a black woman who, by political orientation, I'm a Democrat, um, but I'm in a red state. I talk about climate all the time, but I don't necessarily always say climate change. We, I can talk to a hunter about the changes in the weather, whether, whether or not snakes are in the deer stand earlier in the season versus later in the season, whether or not the rains are coming at a different time. I, I am talking about climate the entire time. And the recognition is that the people who I'm talking to are talking about climate, and they are just as concerned as a social activist that's sitting in California. Hmm. It is the recognition that we're talking about the same thing and looking and finding that middle space and intersectionality. And I think we have to do more of that. That's why this conversation is so important because 
that's what we're trying to do. We're talking about climate and the opportunities that exist to move everyone forward, but in a way that for me, I, I think of as being equitable. So I, I want to see conversations around moving vulnerable populations to talk about green economy jobs. Where are the people who are going to be talking in, on the, you know, the board of the SEC? Where are the investors? Where are the bankers? Where are the lawyers? Where are the, the people who are maybe thinking in a different way than just, oh, do you have a, a, a job that's replacing something else? There's a broad spectrum, I think, for us to think through. I was going to say, Congressman Cabrillo, does this sound familiar to you in talking about climate without using the word climate? Because I think, yeah, on, on the Republican side of the aisle, that's the only way to talk about climate change. <laughs> uh, but Heather's point is important, and, and we spoke to a smaller group of students earlier. We're not going to solve this by lecturing or shaming people. Yeah, I think uh, thinking back at the 2016 campaign, uh, which was just horrible for the country, but um, you know, a lot of people ask, why did uh, Secretary Clinton lose? I can think of two or three moments uh, during that campaign where I thought she made big mistakes. And one of them was, uh, I think, during a debate or a town hall, some kind of forum, she said, you know, we're going to close down the coal plants. We're going to close down the coal plants. And, uh, you know, we have to remember a lot of communities in our country depend on coal plants. There are thousands of people who uh, depend on coal for their jobs. So that's not really how we're going to convince them by telling them that we're just going to close down wherever they work. We need to influence people by showing them what's happening and by showing how they're going to be part of the solution. And by the way, the answer is not, oh, we're just going to retrain you like you're some robot. We're just going to retrain you and you're going to do another job. No, I mean, we have to show them how we're going to invest in their communities. Uh, we probably have to do something for coal miners, make sure that they're taken care of for life. You know, some, some people view them as the enemy these days. These, you know, in, in some ways, these are national heroes. The United States was built on fossil fuels. We built, the, my opinion, the greatest country in the world uh, on the backs of these people. And uh, we're not just going to dismiss them now because we discovered a few decades ago that we were actually uh, doing harm to the environment, uh, even though that was not our intention. So we need to meet people where they're at. And you know, in the Florida Keys, there are a lot of very conservative fishermen down there and charter boat captains. And, and I would tell them, hey, the environment is the economy. If Florida Bay dies, no one's going to come down here to, to see it and to fish and to uh, uh, dive and to um, snorkel. So the, uh, the environment is the economy. You know, our coral reef system, ocean acidification, our reefs are dying. That's, that's, that's the environment, but it's also the economy. So we really do have to meet people where they're at, and that's how we're going to continue building this national coalition that's going to help us address probably the greatest challenge, not just of one generation, but uh, for multiple generations. Can I ask, um, you know, I agree with you about the importance of not announcing, a candidate not announcing that they're going to close down the coal plants and, and that having ricocheting political effects. Of course, if you propose a policy that will effectively close down the coal plants, especially in Congress where 
um, these things are deliberated at least somewhat. Um, people will tell the coal miners and will say, hey, this policy is going to close down your coal plant. Do you see a path for policy? Let's just talk in the legislature that reduces emissions uh, by mandate. Or do you see policy proceeding along the path that we've seen from the bipartisan bill during the Biden administration, for example, that just builds on what already exists, builds out, builds out green energy capacity? Yeah, I mean, I can see both. I mean, I filed a carbon pricing bill in 2018, and part of the revenue, a very small portion of it, was used to establish a retirement plan for coal miners. Because again, I'm not going to go into some community and say, hey, you're a coal miner. Well, now, now I got this computer job for you. This is not the Soviet Union. We don't, you know, we treat people as human beings, not as assets. So um, we, we built in a retirement plan. Any coal miner who wanted to retire would be taken care of for life. And these are the types of solutions or ways that you can build the coalition. And, and you know, maybe some of them may still be offended and not want to do it. But some might say, you know, this is fair. They're saying that, that where I work is bad for the environment, so now I'm going to be taken care of, um, and, and we're going to move to clean energy. Maybe they'll build a solar plant somewhere near here. If, I, if I'm interested, if I want to work there, there's a program for that too. Um, but, but, you know, this is, this is a democracy in politics, and we, we don't have... Um, I hate to call them the advantages of, of dictatorships where, where the government just makes decisions and that's it. We have to take people into account. And that's not just in our policies, but also in our own interactions and our own conversations, because the goal here is to solve this. And if we're going to solve this, we need more people on our side. So um, the way we approach this, I think, is, is will determine how long this takes. Michael, I can tell. I also haven't asked you the question yet, which is how we're going to solve this paradox between people. No, these, and these guys are the experts. But, I just wanted to put a little extra on the table and see what they said. But so one thing about the poll uh, and the whole process around climate change is the degree to which people's preferences or their response to these questions or how they vote or how they talk to their neighbors. That's influenced by uh, the fossil fuel companies who you know, have a stake in things staying in a particular way. Uh, or I, I, I'm hypothesizing that's the case. Is that true? And uh, now I'll come to Ralph's question. Is it possible to have a policy in the presence of people willing to spend lots of money to protect their position? Whatever it might be. So, Michael, e even that has changed. I think if we were sitting here six, seven years ago, definitely 10 years ago, we would have said, well, all the Fossil fuel companies are opposing any efforts to reduce emissions, but that's not the case anymore. I mean, you have almost all of the major uh, uh, oil and gas companies in the world supporting carbon pricing. Why? I mean, probably not because they feel more obligation. Maybe, but, maybe some do. But, 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 but there is the elephant in the room, which I must say, which is that Exxon lobbyist last month said, told some very lucky activists on, on a recorded Zoom. Accidentally. <laughs> Made someone famous. But, but, yeah, look, but, but look, what he said, right, was that, look, we support carbon pricing because we know it can never pass, because we know a mandate like this to reduce emissions. We know no Congress is never going to pass a tax on most Americans. And so that's why we say we support it. So I'll, I'll just 
share my personal experience. When I filed a carbon pricing bill, and by the way, I was the first Republican in a decade to file a carbon pricing bill in Congress. Many representatives from different companies came to see me. ExxonMobil was one, and they told me that they, they, they thanked me for you know, what they thought was a creative solution. One of the things I did in my bill was to repeal the gasoline tax because I didn't want double taxation. We already tax gasoline and plus politically, <laughs> talk about building coalitions, if you double gasoline prices in one year, you're gonna lose your next election, probably, right? And, and that policy will likely be overturned or at least there's a good chance. So we wanted to take that off the table, but, um, you know, at least my experience was that Exxon and, and many other companies came and said, this, this is good, we, we need these kinds of ideas. There was no formal endorsement of the bill, but no one came in and said, hey, you know, why are you doing that? You know, this is, this is a problem or whatever. So, um, you know, back to your question, Michael, we're, we're seeing industry and, and, you know, oil and gas is one example. And, and for them, it's theoretically the hardest, but you know, what do these companies want? They want to be able to plan for the future. They want to see if, if, if um, you know, they know that this is an existential threat to their companies. I mean, they, they have, uh, you know, their shareholders have an interest in, in reducing emissions too. So um, I, again, I, I just, we shouldn't automatically disqualify anyone from this coalition. You know, people bring up this topic of greenwashing. So what? So what? How compelling our cause that some people want to pretend that they're a part of it. That's like being one of the cool kids in school. Like maybe someone says they're your friend, you don't even know them, but you know, it's, it's, it's good that they're saying that, that, you know, that, that helps you, right? That helps your cause, that helps your reputation. So of course it's not ideal, right? We want people who are sincere. But when, I, when we started the Climate Solutions Caucus, Rob, you remember, uh, that caucus in the house, and it's it's being you know uh, re uh, reestablished now. They would say, "Oh, but some of these people are joining; they don't really mean it." I said, "So what?" Now they've joined a caucus, and now people like Rob can hold them accountable. And when they vote, they'll be asked, "Why are you in this caucus? Yet you're voting this way, and that contributes to the cause." Okay, so, so Heather, you you have also experience here because you. <laughs> I, I'm going to sum this up in a quote from my favorite movie and book of all time. He who controls the spice controls the universe. <laughs> that is the epitome of what we're really talking about. It's the control of fossil fuels and money. It comes down to who controls it. 10 years ago, your fossil fuel companies Yes, they were saying these things, and we saw it come out on the, with the lobbyist report, and all of a sudden the, the, the blinds have been pulled back that you know they're making these statements and they've been doing this for some time. We know this. This is not new. Um, I think what, though, has happened and what has shifted and has changed is now it is convenient for them to be a part of this cool kids club. And I do think that there is an issue when we talk about greenwashing and we talk about what the companies are doing that gets to some of the points of this poll and why it came out the way that it did. And it has to do with, it has to do with the trust factors. I mean, there was an article that was done by The Atlantic um, 
I believe it was, if not earlier this year, the end of last year, that talked about the fossil fuel companies and race in the, in the Gulf of Mexico, the fact that many of these companies say, set and, and laid their companies out on the exact same plots of land where you had plantations. Same demographic, same dynamic. There is no trust that has been created. And so therefore, how are people going to trust that these very same companies are going to use the carbon taxing, the carbon pricing to do the right thing for the community. They don't trust that. So I do think that it will happen though. There's a path forward because we are at a space again where we are running out of time and we are seeing people in these new cycles of government, these new cycles of being in, in different industrial spaces, we're seeing diversification and we're seeing a different conversation now. It's a hard one to have, but so, we're having it. So do neither of you think that fossil fuels have a, that fossil fuel companies have played some significant, uh, let's actually rephrase this, because historically, obviously, I think it's a matter of historical fact, they have played the role in climate politics, that today, fossil fuel companies successfully block climate policy in part by persuasion of people, by making it sound, by making people not want to support climate policy in the way that would show up in this poll? Well, I think in the poll, what showed up was people are influenced in different ways. And we saw the, the, those numbers go up over the past, I believe it was four years yeah. of the polling information when I looked at it. And it showed, for example, people are putting more onus on science than they did over the last three or four polls. They're putting more onus on what they're hearing from um, their own organizations. They're putting less onus on what they're hearing from leaders. So that is not where we're getting our information from because that's not who we trust and that has actually gone down. But I do think that the influence now is taking a different direction. Part of this has to do with cycles of politics, just basic cycles of politics, right? We right now today are experiencing with our federal leaders what they were thinking about and what we were talking about two cycles ago because they were in either local seats or state legislative seats and they were very close to the people who were talking about these policies. So now we're seeing things pass a bit differently. In the next two, to, two, two cycles, we'll see what we're talking about right now prevalent in Congress because those will be the people who have run for office and are now elected. But there is a state and local side of this that also has to be accounted for. And I think that's where you see local implementation. That's where you see the attitudes that are reflected in the poll in terms of where people are getting their information from, because it's what they feel with their five physical senses. And they're thinking about it in terms of what impacts them. And that's the space where you know, the policy piece of this, we have got to make some of this align. It's going to be different what people feel and think about climate policy and where they're getting their information from if they're dealing with wildfires in the West versus they're, them dealing with derechos in this part of the country. Um, and I think we have to account for that. I want to come back to the state and local. I, I, Michael, I'll, I'll go to you in just a second. Yes. I, I guess, Congressman Perillo, I just wanted to ask um, interesting point about greenwashing, which I, I appreciate. When you published a carbon tax proposal, a carbon pricing proposal, it was not as if your Republican colleagues stampeded to sign on. Do you think fossil fuel companies had anything to do with that? 
No, I, I, I don't think so. As a matter of fact, in, in uh, more recent meetings with Republicans, we've, uh, we have found that Republicans are upset. Some Republicans are upset at fossil fuel companies for advocating for carbon pricing. Uh, yeah, and, and I'll tell you, when, when we filed our bill, we got um, three additional Republicans. There were four of us, which was a big deal. Again, no Republican had even dared to file this kind of legislation since Bob Inglis 10 years before. Uh, so I, I, I would tell you we're just in a completely different universe than we were just a few years ago, where it, you imagine you have some House Republicans who are angry at oil and gas companies for supporting carbon pricing uh, as, as a solution uh, to climate change. So I uh, think things are changing uh, very quickly. Again, a lot of these changes are happening quietly, uh, but they're real. I, I, I've seen it firsthand for a long time. What do they, why are they upset? Is, in, is there something in the Republican Party at this moment that just makes people not, makes lawmakers, legislators, activists not want to do anything about climate change? Specifically with carbon pricing or a tax on carbon emissions, a tax on pollution, as I like to call it, because that's, that's, I think, the most honest and, uh, description, uh, Republicans are just generally opposed to new taxes, and not just taxes on carbon, but taxes on income and taxes on consumption, um, which, which, of course, is somewhat divorced from conservative economics, but, but that's, a, that's a separate topic. We're, we're living very populist times. Uh, that's the greatest obstacle. But when you look at uh, a lot of the other policies, Republicans have gotten very comfortable. Uh, public and public investment, before Republicans used to say, well, let the private sector do it. Public investment in research and development for emissions reduction technologies, tax credits uh, for clean energy, um, um, uh, investments in, in you know, advanced nuclear uh, carbon capture storage. So the Republicans are developing, it's still a short menu, but they're developing a menu of policies that they feel comfortable with. And again, this is just a, another world compared to five years ago. And I'll tell you, a lot of people thought that the biggest challenge with Republicans was denialism. I actually found very few Republicans while I was in Congress who denied basic climate science. I did find a lot of people who were apathetic and who knew very little about the topic. Those were the biggest enemies, and those are being overcome. Denialism is just a, is a distraction. Of course, it's an easy way to get on TV, but very few people actually uh, fall into that category. Michael, I cut you off earlier. Uh, no, no. Uh, I think one thing that I'm struck by is how the poll results have changed over time. Uh, and there does seem to be more support and we had a private conversation in advance, and I was actually struck. Uh, I'm not sure the outside world would have thought both of you kind of had, I heard you having kind of very similar perspectives, which is that, well, climate change can't really stand by itself. Uh, it's too hard for whatever reason. Uh, but that when you wrap it around with something else, and you were using the phrase, Heather, intersectionality, uh, that it is able to draw more people in. Uh, and I, I'd be curious to hear both of you talk about it. And then I'll just add to it, you know, technocratic economic viewpoint is it's super hard to devise climate policies. If the only thing you're targeting is climate, it's super hard to devise like efficient and good climate policies. 
And then when you hear, well, wait a minute, now we have to do three other things and the climate thing, then you're like, okay, wait, how's this all gonna work? And it gets very complicated. But let me just start with, uh, I was fascinated that both of you kind of have the same, I heard you have the same view. And I wonder what you think of the prospects of continuing to tie topics of climate change in a way that might make two years from now poll look even more favorable towards action. Yeah, I think it, without a doubt, I mean, when we get to solutions, right? We're really not that far apart. Often, we're saying some of the same things, just using different language. Republicans don't want tax. Democrats really don't like to be taxed either, quite frankly. <laughs> you know, no, we just, we're talking about people. People don't want to pay out more money than they have to. People want to be safe. People want to be secure. People want to know that their children and their families have a future. And when we begin breaking down these terms in the way that people can understand them, I think it becomes very intersectional. When we talk about climate change, and, and even on the poll, when you have all of these social issues, and then climate is one of the social issues, it's very easy to see how it's going to rank lower as opposed to being woven into every issue. So if I'm dealing with police brutality, health disparities, education issues, and climate change, then I'm gonna think about the safety of my family, whether or not I have a job, and whether or not I can breathe before I think about what type of carbon tax should be allocated. But now if I begin to interweave those things together, carbon taxing or polluters paying, um, that could be a way that the air in my community becomes better so that my children who have asthma don't have to worry about whether or not they can go outside and play. My children don't have asthma. I'm giving you an example, but you understand what I'm saying. Um, having a conversation around new clean energy jobs as a pathway to a better job for myself in the space in which I live. Finding ways to have impacts on climate change such that the heat disparities that are taking place around our country reduce heat impacts, maybe in the urban place in which I live, which is a direct reflection upon violence in communities. Now I have interwoven climate into all of those social justice things that I just said. And I think the more that we begin to show how climate and environmental impacts are actually a part of our everyday life, as opposed to something separate, the closer we become on what that solution path is. I think, uh, I think that's brilliant because we, we really have to humanize this issue. I mean, what, what's emissions reduction? That sounds like, who can relate to that? What's well, a net zero? Net well, we do zero. Yeah, <laughs> of course you do, that's the problem. Um, well, you know, two degrees, two degrees, we gotta limit warming to two degrees. That's, that's, that's not gonna work. Yes. That's not going to work. What, what Heather said is going to work. And, and Michael, there's also some intersectional opportunism. So I'll give you an example. Something that became popular with Republicans and, and a lot of Democrats in the country and independents uh, during the Trump administration was this idea of holding China accountable, right? Holding China, you know, whatever, punishing the Chinese, what, however angle people came at it. There's an opportunity here. Uh, if we if we have a carbon pricing system in this country someday, a, a transparent one, we could impose a border adjustment tax, which would be very popular, I think, with a lot of Republicans and and again more than Republicans. Might have been good policy too. <laughs> well, that that too. But 
there, there are some themes here where there is an intersection between climate and um, some of these populist ideas, which by the way, it's not just a, a shallow populist idea. I mean, we do need to hold China accountable on, on many issues. Climate is one of them. So uh, a border adjustment tax would be the, the easiest way of, of holding China accountable. And it'd it be, you know, in some ways, the equivalent of a tariff, which people who like Donald Trump would probably applaud. Um, we're going to go to questions in a second, so start formulating them in your head. Um, does it, is then the right way to do climate policy is to just not talk about climate change? Because that, I'm well, to, also to hearing that as a similarity. It, to humanize it. I mean, th really, this is about pollution. I, I would tell people we want to tax things that are bad. Pollution is bad. Let's tax pollution because we want less of it. Uh, everyone here can agree that whatever you want less of, you tax, right? Because it creates a disincentive. Why do we have to talk about you know, carbon tax? That's so uh, abstract. We need to tax pollution, right? Just like we tax cigarettes because we want people to smoke less so that they're healthier and so that we all pay less uh, for healthcare in our countries. It's the same concept, but we just have to talk about it. I don't think, this is not about hiding the ball. I mean, it's not about being insincere. It's about being smart and strategic. I would add to humanize, normalize. We want to humanize and normalize the climate conversation such that it is not some far out objective thing that people cannot touch. It, we, we saw a very, a very altruistic response in the polls. You know, we saw where people were willing to do something for someone other than themselves. But there also, there's also this piece of accountability that becomes a part of the normalization of climate. If we're gonna talk about regulating ourselves, our communities, then let's talk about also some of the, the, the other industries that we need to hold accountable. You know, we've talked about, for example, um, we saw in the polling around, I think we've talked about EV and this may have been on an, another conversation, but you know, our personal responsibility and what we do with response to our electric vehicles. There's also this other aspect of, you know, medium and light duty trucks. That's one of the projects we're working on at the Environmental Defense Fund. And how are we going to help electrify entire fleets of vehicles such that we are on a large scale reducing transportation emissions in the communities where they are most vulnerable, where they are the biggest impact? You know, where's the regulatory space on that as well as what we're doing in our personal lives? So I think normalizing this conversation such that it becomes a part of everything is a very key component. Can I just ask you all, three, all three of you, starting with Michael, actually, because <laughs> we have really neglected you during this conversation, sir, um, to play pundit for a second and just ask, how is what we're talking about different than some of what we saw from Democrats during this bill. Because when we talk about normalizing climate change, we talk about not making a big climate policy. That was supposedly what this big, that was part of what this big infrastructure push was, right? It wasn't a climate bill, it was a whole infrastructure bill and it had all these other aspects to it. And one of them was climate change. And yet we wind up kind of talking about climate policy anyway. Um, how, we talk about making legislative policy in the Congress, or in the Biden administration or at the state and local level, how is what the kind of pathway you guys are talking about different from what Democrats did with reconciliation? 
you're, you're asking what my solutions are as opposed to what Democrats are proposing in reconciliation? I'm not asking about the specific policies that Democrats are, are proposing. That's a great, great, great question. I'm asking, it seems to me Democrats did a lot of this stuff. They didn't really talk about climate change. They talked about infrastructure. They talked about communities. They also did a really bad job of branding their bill. So now we all call it the, in a story I'm publishing tomorrow, we're calling it the signature spending package, which <laughs> sounds like an incredible American Express offer. Yeah. Um, but, uh, well, I'll say, yeah. uh, Rob, I don't, I don't think the climate provisions are what's driving Republican opposition to the package. I mean, first of all, it's being done under reconciliation. That usually automatically gets you the opposition of the opposition party. I mean, we did tax reform in 2017 through reconciliation, and not a single Democrat voted for it, even though some of them thought it was okay and thought it was a good idea to lower the corporate tax rate. So, I mean, that, that's more of a process question. And I think most of the Republican attacks are just generally on the spending and on injecting so much more you know, debt into the economy at a time where we have a labor shortage in the country and there's you know, positive pressure on wages. So there, there are actually a lot of good opportunities for people out there. So I, I don't, you know, I, I think the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill is a better indicator of where we are politically on this issue than the reconciliation package, because I don't care what you put in it just because it was done under reconciliation specifically to exclude Republicans, as we did. You know, this is not, it's not that they did anything new. Um, th that's why Republicans are opposed to it. Yeah, I know. Couldn't you say that uh, the fact that the climate provisions continue to exist is a reflection of change? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, Joe Manchin is against particular features of it, but he didn't, there's parts he left untouched. And I think that's a real, that's a reflection of something. I mean, I do think something has changed. Yeah, I mean, if both these bills pass, it, it, it's going to, I mean, for people who care about this issue, they yeah. should have a big party. I mean, I I, Barack if, Obama if you, if tried throwing something one, as ambitious in a second term, for sure. I mean, after his uh, first two years, he, never tried, he didn't try anything as ambitious. I think we have to give the administration a bit more credit. You know, this administration has dealt with COVID. This administration has dealt with vaccine rollout. We have dealt with an economy that has been tanked and we have been trying our best to work collectively together inside the administration, outside the administration to, to get these things back up and going. There's been voter suppression that is happening all across this country. So let's not you know, forget some of the bills that we also have been working on, I think collectively as a part of this. And we need to do a better job of tying together, celebrating some wins, but also understanding that this is a very long process and that it's going to require every part of government working together. So I, I gotta give the administration because it's some credit because they have done a hell of a job in the midst of some tumultuous times. Um, but Again, recognizing that there's still a path forward. There is still local government, private business, because we haven't touched on private business and philanthropy that's now showing up to, to walk hand in hand with community, with government to figure out how do we fund this? How do we make these solutions happen? How do we listen to people on the ground and implement it quickly 
You know, that's happening in real time. And, and I think when we really begin to tie together this web, yes, we're humanizing it. We're normalizing it. We are making progress, and we need to keep looking at that direction. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Sam Ory.